Since 1971, Beauty O Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. Could a birding boom in the U.S. help conservation take flight? It is a question asked by Robin Catalano for National Geographic recently, and one that we've been asking ourselves, if we're honest, for the last 18 pandemic months or so. A nod, a guess, to the headline writer for the birding pun. That could have been, could have been much worse. There's a lot of interesting ideas in this article linked in the show notes, of course, but the course seems to have to do with the sort of existential crisis wildlife and game agencies are facing, as hunting and fishing whose practitioners have long funded conservation initiatives through usage fees and licenses are declining. And yes, birding and nature photography and other non-consumptive ways to enjoy the natural world are seeing an increase in popularity, but without a way to replace that passive revenue stream. Birding is increasing, but it's not really helping the bottom lines all that much. So yes, birding is growing. There are more millennials birding. There are more social media savvy people birding, which helps with getting the hobby out in front of people. There's more diversity in the birding world. You can say that there is still not enough. I would certainly agree with you, but it is worth looking at where we have come in addition to where we want to be. Birding is changing. I think we can all agree that that is a good thing, at least a natural thing. Everything changes. But the question of how we turn that into conservation funds, dollars that go to protecting the birds that we watch continues to be an open one. The National Geographic article has some interesting anecdotes, a $200,000 donation to the Puffin Project here, a birding tourism company that donates 10% of their profits to local communities. There, uh, obviously, these are great. You love to see this sort of thing, but they are haphazard, and it's not the same as an organized system of fee collection like licenses, like the duck stamp, for instance. And, you know, obviously, we at the ABA encourage birders to purchase the duck stamp. It is not ideal for a couple very significant reasons, namely it pools all the numbers of birders into the numbers of hunters that use it as well. But it is what we have, and you can't argue with success. But it is a dilemma. Anyway, the Nat Geo article, good read. Add it to the lengthening list of media coverage of birding, and, you know, the lengthening list of media coverage of the issues surrounding birding, you know, the big questions that we're trying to ask ourselves. It does mark the return of the questionable U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service figure of 45 million birders in the U.S. Uh, anytime I read that number, my my eyebrows go up. A lot of metrics are out there that have suggested that interest in birding is increasing, but you know, one out of every eight or so Americans, I don't know. Maybe we'll see some movement on this soon. The issue is not going away. On the show today, I have a lovely pileated woodpecker story from Nancy Archer of Richmond, Virginia. Thank you, Nancy. Just a reminder, pileated woodpecker is still bird of the year for four more months of 2021. But first, 
the American robin is among the most familiar birds in the ABA area, everywhere from urban parks to vast southern swamps to the dry southwest. But even a bird as familiar as all that can hold surprises. Ecologist Emily Williams studies the movements of robins. She joins me to talk about the wildlife of a well-known bird after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of August, beginning of September 2021. I've spoken here before about the hurricane paradox, that feeling that birders get when they're well aware of the destructive capabilities of tropical storms, but a little excited about the birds blown around to weird places by those storms. Well, Hurricane Ida was a perfect example of that moral conundrum, and while the storm itself may be more noteworthy for the transcontinental migrants that it waylaid than the birds it pushed inland, uh, the days following the storm saw a number of Sabin's gulls, long-tailed Jaegers, and black-legged kittiwakes in areas north of where Ida's remnants passed over. They're almost certainly Arctic breeding birds that typically migrate overland without stopping, but they were forced down by Ida. Even with all that, there's still some cool stuff that Ida knocked around. The Gulf Coast of Florida had the biggest surprises, a wedge-tailed shearwater, a first for Florida and only the third for the entire Atlantic Ocean. You might remember a bird earlier this year off of North Carolina that was only the second Atlantic record, was seen from shore hinging out with laughing gulls in Pinellas County. This was a light phase bird, so one of the population that breeds in Hawaii, your guess is as good as mine as to how it got there. That same day, a wrecked Bulwer's petrel was picked up from a beach on the Panhandle. No more specific location was given. It is only the fifth for the Atlantic coast of North America, though they do breed in the eastern Atlantic. And the first confirmed for Florida, though there are two previously unaccepted site records. Turning now to the opposite side of the ABA area, where birding at Gamble on St. Lawrence Island in Alaska is getting exciting. The last couple weeks have seen records of the Middendorf's grasshopper warbler, Willow warbler, common chiffchaff, and two dusky warblers. Quite the smorgasbord for birders who love rather confusing Eurasian warblers. The word warbler obviously in quotation marks these days. It is a taxonomic waste bin. No one knows what it means anymore. That is all we have for you this week for the entire roundout. Check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert every Friday at aba.org slash rba. You can also get the information as soon as it happens on our ABA Rarity Sharing Facebook group. That's ABA Rare Bird Alert. Or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Uh, what can we learn from one of the most familiar birds in North America, a bird so well known that its migration is remarked upon by friends and colleagues who might otherwise have no knowledge about birds more generally? I'm speaking, of course, of the ubiquitous American robin. But there's a lot left to learn, even about a bird that everyone seems to know. That is, in part, the work of my guest, Emily Williams. She is an avian ecologist at Georgetown University currently studying the migration ecology of American robins. Hello, Emily. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me. So, like, how did the robin become your study species? So, it kind of goes back before I started at Georgetown. I previously was working at Denali National Park and Preserve in Alaska, and I started working with robins then. And... It kind of started with um, a friend and collaborator of mine, Dr. Alex John, who's at Indiana University. Kind of his whole research program is doing these temperate tropical comparisons between either birds in the same genus or really closely related species. Oh, cool. And he, most of his background is in South America, mm-hmm. and he was doing a lot of work on turdis thrushes in South America. 
and he wanted to have this North American equivalent. And so, of course, for most of North America, the only tortoise is the American robin. And so he had approached me because he wanted to do this really widespread look at robins across their range. And me being in Alaska, Alaska is a pretty cool place, not only for it being Alaska, but for birds in general. Definitely. And so he approached me about joining on doing this robin stuff. And so initially we just started putting some tags out on birds to learn about their migration, but then it really transformed into once I left my job at Denali and then came to Georgetown, became the focus of my dissertation because number one, um, we're in a pandemic and what better species to work <laughs> <right>. with than, <laughs> than the one that's in your front yard? <laughs> <laughs> then yeah, it requires like no travel <laughs> right. to get to. Uh, so it's a really great species from that standpoint. And then in terms of the stuff that I'm really interested in, in terms of research questions, the stuff that really gets me going is learning why birds migrate, what shapes, why some birds migrate and mm -hmm. some birds don't. And the robin is a pretty perfect species for that question. And surprisingly, as you started off this conversation, you know, you'd think that we'd know a lot about robin migration, <laughs> right, but it turns right. out we know very little. Yeah. It's it's interesting that you mentioned all the turtis thrushes. One of the things I love about robins and that whole genus is like everywhere you go, just about everywhere you go in the world, there's a turtis thrush kind of doing robin things. Like yep. you go to Central America, there's clay-colored thrushes walking around in the gardens, picking up worms. You go to Africa, there's African thrushes doing robin things. I, I just find that so, so cool. At European blackbirds in Europe, you know, it, it's neat to be able to compare that that to species that are more or less, you know, filling similar ecological niches, no matter where in the world that they are. Totally. I mean, the turtis genus is amazing because it's literally on every continent except yeah. Antarctica. So, yeah. you know, this robin sub, even though it's the focus of my dissertation, there's a lot of opportunity to not only compare to South American turtis thrushes, but we can make global comparisons yeah, yeah. of turtle thrushes across the world because like you said they they do similar things and i think this pattern of having some birds migrate some don't and doing mm -hmm. really different things all across the range and robins is probably similar in a lot of turtles thrushes where they occur elsewhere american robin such a familiar bird on everybody's lawn cities suburbs way out in the rural parts of the country too do you feel like you have to you know push back at all on the idea that there's very little left to know about this species, you know, people feel like they know it, but they don't really know it. Oh, totally. I mean, I think one of my favorite things with my PhD is, uh, you know, the, the work that I'm doing is very urban. So mm -hmm. I'm working in a lot of private backyards. I'm, I'm working in public parks and, you know, as it goes with working in these areas, you see a lot of people and yeah. You know, a lot of people will see me with binoculars or they see me with a mist net and they're immediately like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people, I'll say I'm working on robins and then they just like, oh, okay. And then they just continue walking. Like, yeah, right. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just going <laughs> to go about my day. What do you want to know about these things? Yeah. <laughs> but um, for people who know a little bit about birds, at least they'll say, oh, 
just the robin yeah and i'd be like what do you mean just the robin (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so for sure it's like and birders too you know robins aren't that you know it's not that exciting bird that you chase Mm -hmm. or you go to some far off place to go see because they're literally everywhere and so for sure i get a lot of pushback from just the general public as well as birders in terms of robins just aren't exciting and then people just assume that because they're common that means that we know everything there is to know about them and so it's it's the tragedy of the commons as i say that totally a lot of common birds suffer this that they're super common. So people just overestimate what we know. And because they're common, people aren't excited about them. So they just like get left out in terms of research because people are like, I'm going to go after that golden cheek warbler because that's way cooler. And so, you know, we have all these common species that we don't know a lot about. Yeah, they totally get overlooked. Because as you say, like people want the the flashier conservation story, you know, Robin is relatively stable population, but they're still yep. doing things that can imply to these, I don't know, flashier, for lack of a better word. I know robins are pretty flashy. Like, I've seen those kind of bright male spring robins with a black head. Totally. Yeah, they're, they're a really good-looking bird. Um, if we're, we're making conservation decisions about all sorts of birds, then we need to know the common. We need to keep the common birds common, for starters. Like, it should be, like, the bare minimum of the conservation efforts. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. So what have you learned about American robins that has surprised you? Well, dang. I mean, I feel like most things that I'm learning about robins surprise me, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> um, I guess in terms of the stuff that's the focus of what I've been doing, just that what we're learning about their migration so far, I think is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, another thing that I get when I talk with people about robins that either are birders, so I get kind of like people in two different camps. Mm-hmm. The people who are birders, I'll tell them that I'm studying the migration of robins. And some people that are birders are like, I'm so excited that you're doing this because I've always wondered what the hell yeah. robins are doing. Where do they go? <laughs> and then the other camp is like, oh, robins don't really migrate or they're around all the time. You know, we, why are you doing that? And then I also get that from the general public that, you know, people who are not necessarily birders, not scientists, but appreciate birds will say well the robin in my backyard i see it year round and then i'm like are you sure about that (laughs) is it the same robin (laughs) so that's when i get go into my spiel about how that robin that's in your backyard in the middle of indianapolis could be that same robin that you've been seeing all year round or it could be a robin that's just spending its summer there but it's going to go further south to spend its winter or it's a robin that's moving through on migration, or it could be a robin that wintered there, but it's going further north to mm-hmm. go spend its summer. And that kind of encapsulates the variation that we've been seeing with the GPS tag doing with robins. So we've gotten preliminary data from Alaska and Indiana at this point. I've been tagging robins in the Washington DC area. So we don't really have that data yet because the robins haven't really started to move. Mm-hmm. Um, but from Alaska and Indiana, um, the birds that we tagged in Alaska were tagged in Denali. So all those birds were what we call complete migrants. So all of them migrated and where they spent the winter was really different. So or not two robins did the same thing. 
So we had one Robin that went to Texas, another that went to Oklahoma, another to Montana, another to Nebraska. So they went to completely different wintering areas. And then in Indiana, we had what are called partial migrants. So part of the uh, population migrated. So we had some Robins that migrated and some that didn't. And same thing with, with the ones that migrated, they went to completely different areas. So we had Robins that went to Alabama, Tennessee, Florida, Texas, hmm. Louisiana. Uh, so they went to completely different areas. And then we had some Robins that they stayed in Indiana for most of the year. And then for a month, they went to Tennessee and they were like, hey, I'm going to check out Tennessee. And then I'm, I didn't like it. I'm going to go back to Indiana. Hmm. Um, so there's just been a lot of variation in what they're doing, which is making me really question the labels that we put on yeah. not only robins, but birds in general. You know, what makes a migrant? Alaska to Texas. I mean, that's a that's an impressive movement. Like that's on par with a lot of birds that we look at with amazement, you know, how far they're going. That yeah, that, that's pretty mind blowing <laughs> to, oh, to yeah. know that they're making that sort of crossing. I am being advised by Dr. Pete Mara at mm-hmm. Georgetown. And of course, most people who know Pete and his research program, he's done most of his uh, lifelong work on American Red Starts. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of personal enjoyment <laughs> by telling him how the American robins in Alaska are actually migrating farther yeah, than his. Totally. American Red Start. <laughs> One of my very first um, really memorable birding experiences when I was a, a teenager just getting into birding was uh, on a Christmas bird count. And we saw like just massive, just massive American robin roost that was flying out of this, you know, copse of trees in the morning. And um, I forget how we count, how many we counted. It was in the hundreds of thousands, but it was just like streaming birds passing overhead. Um, it's amazing to think that those birds could be coming from, and this was in, this was in Southwest Missouri. It's amazing to think that those birds could be coming from all over North America potentially, and all ending up here in this little patch of trees. <laughs> in, totally. Uh, yeah, it's in, just outside of you know a city. It's pretty pretty crazy to think about. That's amazing. I've heard about th- some of those roosts in Missouri, and I really want to see one. Yeah, it's a lot of birds. It's just like, yeah, and it's not like like a big concentrated flock. It's just, you know, for half an hour, you've got just robins in the air moving. It seems like the the American robin, more than most, is a species that's sort of well-suited for a rapidly changing world, for, for better or for worse. What is it about them that sort of allows them to survive and even thrive? I mean, that's a great question. You know, we don't really know the answer to why is it that robins... Um, in comparison to a lot of other species, mm-hmm. seem to be seem to do so well. You know, they are pretty much everywhere across yeah. the North American American continent. I mean, it's one of the the selling pieces I I give to them is that you know when you look up on Cornell's All About Birds website or any sort of resource that says something about bird species, mm-hmm. you look up the robin and it'll say nesting substrate, and it'll say ground tree. <laughs> Yeah. shrub whatever All of it. Yeah. um and so they will nest on basically anything they can occur in pretty much every habitat except underwater and they have 
this enormous geographic range. And so it just begs the question, how do they do it? What makes them so adaptable and why? And we really don't know, but I think that because they are so adaptable and hopefully, you know, some of this migration research will, will learn, you know, is it just that, are they more attuned to their uh, surrounding conditions in terms of making these decisions mm -hmm. rather than, you know, the idea of them being more uh, programmed to do these things. And right. my guess is they're not, you know, yeah. and it'd be really cool to take those Alaska robins, drop them off someplace else and see what they do right. um, to right. compare, you know, those Alaska robins to robins um, in the more Southern parts of the range. But um, in terms of like rapid environmental change, they would be a great species to look to see how are they dealing with climate change. And we mm -hmm. already know from a study, a more recent study, that they are adjusting their migration times in anticipation hmm. of um, earlier springs. So we can use them as the sentinel species to say, okay, well, this isn't a very adaptable species. So can we compare across other species like dark-eyed juncos, for example, which are also super adaptable? Mm -hmm. um, another species, how are they going to cope with things like climate change or increasing human development or whatever? Yeah, it seems like there's not a habitat that they can't manage in. And and as you say, you know, they're they're not obligate migrants like they can they can decide not to migrate if they don't necessarily have to. If there's and it seems like in cities with a lot of ornamental fruiting trees just really seems to attract them especially in the winter. These days I mean I see more kind of urban robins around than I I, um, maybe maybe I've been overlooking them. That's almost certainly true for for so yeah. long too. It seems to be the case with the species, but they manage really quickly. Like they're really plastic. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, totally. Doing your work in sort of urban suburban landscapes with a lot of people, um, do you find that when you're telling people about your work that they seem sort of interested in these larger conservation concepts like uh, migration connectivity and things like that because you know, the American robin is the face of this. You know, they're familiar, they're connected to it. Do you think we can use the robin and sort of the cool things we're learning as a way to encourage people to be more interested in these concepts more broadly with other bird species? I certainly hope so. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people who aren't associated with birds in any way know mm -hmm. what a robin is. You know, yeah, they're right. like, oh yeah, I know what a robin is. I see it in my backyard. And so that's my hope is that you can use this kind of use the face of the robin to launch all of these conservation ideas to people and use what we're learning to say, hey, like planting native in your garden does yeah. amazing things for not just robins, yeah. but for all these other species. Um, in terms of interacting with people and getting the sense of do people have this mindset, it's I, I would say that's kind of hit or miss, you know, mm -hmm. it seems like some, it, you know, the people who I say Rob is, and they just continue walking along. <laughs> hard <laughs> Can't to say them. Yeah. yeah. Hard to reach them. I would say, you know, those people, I don't know. I don't know yeah. how, what their values are about conservation, but I've had a lot of people who stop and have talked with me for half an hour and will say, thank you for doing this very important work. Mm -hmm. You know, you're doing really great things. And so I think there is 
a high potential for a lot of those people. And also just because it is such a public facing project. Yeah. yeah. I really do hope that there will be all of these benefits in terms of just not only just increasing awareness about birds and appreciation for birds, you know, the people that are behind doing the research and learning about them, but also what people can do, easy steps they can do to make um, things better for birds. Yeah. I was, you know, checking into some of your work on uh, that you've talked about on, on various websites. And one of the things that I found sort of interesting was the connection between Robins and Lyme disease. Now, obviously, we're talking a lot about public health these days. It's on the front of everyone's mind. You know, how are birds impacting people's public health? How do robins potentially cause problems by spreading out into the landscape and, and bringing ticks and potentially bringing this uh, this harmful pathogen? Yeah, so that's a lot of work that um, Alex John that I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. in, in the conversation, he's working on that with Dr. Dan Becker, who's at... Uh, University of Oklahoma, I think. I always get the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State confused. <laughs> um, so they're studying more the disease dynamics of Robinson, so not just Lyme, but other tick-borne pathogens, malaria, etc. Hmm. Um, and so far, of the samples that we've been taking, I don't think that they have seen Lyme in the blood samples we've been taking in Robinson. Mm-hmm. But there is this high potential because... Yeah. You know, they can be a vector for Lyme. They're in these places where um, humans are. Like, you know, you see robins in really um, human-habitated areas. Mm-hmm. And so there's this possibility that a tick that came off of a robin, you know, somehow gets onto a human and it can transfer Lyme. So there's this big potential for it. And I'd say that, you know, my knowledge of the Lyme aspects of of this project are are not that great mm-hmm. but i would say that there is this high potential that it could be this big disease vector and then the really important piece is, is linking it to their migration behavior because yeah, right like you were saying with that roost in missouri the fact that these robins could be coming from all these different geographic areas could be like <laughs> yeah. in terms of disease could be huge so um there's a lot of potential for not only working with robins and disease, but what we're learning about their migration. How many times have you had to explain to people that the robins aren't really returning in spring and that they've been there the whole winter? <laughs> um, many times. <laughs> Most of the time, I'd say. Um, or not even that, you know, like explaining the opposite that people would be like, oh, that robin that I see is my robin. And I'm like, yeah. it's not really a robin. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, it is interesting the extent to which robins have sort of, because they're so familiar and because people are inclined to notice them when they pop up on their lawns, how that how that myth has, has I, I don't even know when it started, but it's like hundreds of years old. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is if you do a Google search, mm-hmm. uh, American robin spring. Mm-hmm. There will be all of these articles that pop up of, of how robins are this harbinger of spring. And so people associate, I see a robin, oh, it's springtime. You know, the robins are finally back from <laughs> wherever they were for the winter. Yeah. But then there's all these other articles that say that this is a, you know, this is a misnomer. This is a phrase that <laughs> is made out of error because robins are in my backyard all year long. And right. they don't really tell me when spring's happening anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it it's 
two things. You know, I think it, a lot of this is probably that robins had this type of variation in their migration always. Yeah. But I do think it's changing. You know, mm. I think mm-hmm. the, and this is something that hopefully my research will unveil is my hunch is that I think that they're basically that line delineating where they're resident is moving northward. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So I think basically a lot of robins that say went to a place to go winter are just staying. So just staying. basically yeah. their wintering range, the the range boundaries of that is is moving northward. Is yeah. is my general sense. Yeah. You know, you talk to a lot of people about robins, they'll be like, Oh, I think they're expanding their their summer range. And I don't necessarily think that's the case because there's a lot of legacy data of robins. Um I always like to tell this this little anecdote about um, robins being in far northern places, but there's this uh, legacy data set that I came across when I was working in Alaska that um, I don't know anything about this project, but it was some like old school citizen science project where people were filling out nest cards of, of species. Mm-hmm. And so when I was looking up these nest cards for robins, you know, there are reports of nesting robins in, you know, what's now Utiabic, Barrow, Alaska from the 60s. You know, so there are these old nest cards from 50, 60, 70 years ago that are in places in Alaska, because this was an Alaskan project, Mm -hmm. that they were nesting there. So it's like one thing to huh. say like, oh, like this is just like a report that, that they saw this bird. So yeah, maybe it's a vagrant. But the fact that there's breeding information for robins yeah. in these really northern locations in Alaska, you know, makes me think that maybe their breeding range was always pretty far north. And the reason we think that they're expanding is we're seeing them more because more robins are staying. Yeah. Um, hmm. And of course, like all these far northern places in the country, not only in Alaska, but in Canada, you know, they're sparsely populated. So we're not going to know about robins being there because there's just not people there to report seeing them and seeing them breed. Like a black hole of data almost. Right. Yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. And I would imagine like a a robin nesting in Utgiavik would be, I mean, there's not many trees for them to nest in up there. So they would be nesting on like someone's house like they do. Like they do down here, and probably yeah, yeah, like totally. It seems it feels it feels intuitively like it would be good data. Yeah, this uh, one of the nest cards that I came across. It was um, I can't remember ex- the exact location, but it was like you know maybe fifty miles south of where Etiopic is, and it says you know it's like kind of a classic nest card. It says you know species, clutch size, date that you found it substrate the nest is on and it has you know same thing tree shrub whatever and it has other and then the <laughs> handwritten is airplane so, <laughs> there, there there must be some abandoned airplane in That's this right. like remote alaska that a robin was nesting closest on. thing to a tree they could find yeah yeah that's fascinating huh Emily Williams an avian ecologist at Georgetown University currently studying the migration ecology American Robbins, an active science communicator on the internet, and you can find that information in the show notes. I'll put it there. Thank you so much, Emily. This was a uh, this was really fun, and uh, good luck catching those Robbins that you that you've tagged. <laughs> Thanks, I need it. <laughs>
This is Nancy from Richmond, Virginia. My story about the pileated woodpecker is about my grandson, who is five, um, and wanting to instill a lifelong love of birds in him. Um, you know, I talk about them. I have lots of feeders outside my kitchen window. And he's seen um, loads of birds uh, there, chickadees, downies, tufted titmice, etc. But it was the day he saw a pileated woodpecker land on the tree trunk on the other side of the driveway that changed everything. He said, wow. And from that day, the pileated is his favorite bird. So I'm very happy. Thank you so much, Nancy. If you have a pileated woodpecker story to share in these last few months of its bird of the year reign, please record it in the voice recorder app on your phone and send it to podcast at aba.org. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, you can do so by joining the ABA. You get great magazines, you get discounts to our partners, you get to travel with ABA staff and friends. It is definitely more than what you'd get from just supporting a podcast normally. To learn more, check out aba.org join. I do have some shout outs to make. This week, thank you to Justin Roberge of Bolton, Massachusetts, Chris Beasley of Chesapeake Bay, Maryland, and Richard Davis of New York, New York, for joining the ABA and noting the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who finds the duck stamp a far, far more effective tool for raising conservation funds than a duck stomp. It's less messy, too. Technical production is by John Lowry, who thinks the duck stomp is fine, just so long as they only use American or European squishions. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who remember fondly duck stomps of the past, especially with throttle duck. You can find us online at aba.org or on social media as American Birding Association or ABA if you make sure we're the right ABA. I, I'm not so bougie as to never have attended any duck stamps in my past. You know, I put a real gadwall up on a scop once, knocked him on his canvas back. You can even say I was a real common punchard. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week. <laughs>